X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Wednesday, May 19th. Today, back in the day on May 19th, 1883, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show opened in Omaha, Nebraska. William Buffalo Bill Cody used his personal history as a soldier, frontiersman, and Buffalo Hunter to open an onstage spectacular that toured around the country. The show featured fancy shooters, horse-riding cowboys and natives, stagecoaches, Buffalo Hunters, and a Pony Express ride. Headliners of the show included the sharpshooter Annie Oakley, legendary Sioux warrior Sitting Bull, and storyteller Calamity Jane. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show helped cement the tropes and stereotypes of the Western frontier in the American imagination. The show was semi-authentic but romanticized, glossing over the hardships and the racism endemic to settler life. By the time the show closed in 1916, spectators arrived in automobiles to see one of the most famous figures of the American Old West ride on horseback. Today, back in the day, on May 19, 1909, Pacific Northwest historian Dorothy Johansson was born. Dorothy was a pioneering historian in the region who lived a rich life as a professor, archivist, and community leader. Born in Seaside, she graduated from Reed College in 1933 with a Bachelor of the Arts in History. She would go on to get her master's in 1935 and her PhD in 1941, both from the University of Washington. It was an incredible achievement for a woman at the time. Dorothy began teaching history at Reed College in 1938. She was promoted to professor of history and humanities in 1969. As a professor, she was known as a demanding and witty seminar leader, often chomping on a cigar during class. She continued to serve as the college's official archivist until 1984, long after she had retired. Along with Charles M. Gates, she co-authored Empire of the Columbia, a History of the Pacific Northwest, in 1957. The book quickly became a mainstay in classrooms and is considered one of the most important texts about the region. She founded book presses, helmed educational boards, and received numerous awards for her work. Dorothy was a lover of knowledge and worked her whole life to make history alive and accessible for our community. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Emily Green from Street Roots on the importance of street newspapers. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. Oregon will allow vaccinated people to go maskless outside, according to new guidance from the OHA. They'll also be able to go maskless in most indoor settings, too, as long as they can prove they're vaccinated. That means it will be up to businesses and employers to check vaccination records or cards. You can go maskless outdoors regardless of vaccine status. However, the state still recommends that people wear masks in crowds and large gatherings, especially if they are unvaccinated or at high risk. The state will still require everyone to wear masks and maintain physical distance on public transport, in schools, shelters, healthcare facilities, and correctional institutions. Businesses are legally allowed to make proof of vaccination a requirement to enter the premises, and they are allowed to ask. 
But if a business or venue doesn't want to check vaccination records, they can still use their own discretion to require masks or other restrictive measures. Oregon will reevaluate the mask guidance and other restrictions when we reach a 70% vaccination rate among residents 16 and older. Now your daily dose of data. In Oregon, 58.9% of adults aged 16 or older have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. 46.3% are fully vaccinated, and 12.7% are in progress. In Multnomah County, that number is 65% of people over 16. In Washington County, it's 64.3%. And in Clackamas County, it's 58%. A random fact for you. 73.7% of people between the ages of 70 and 75 have been fully vaccinated. Turns out the Enchanted Forest won't be opening this weekend as planned. After their optimistic announcement on Monday afternoon, the beloved Oregon Amusement Park received threats and angry comments about their reopening plans. The Enchanted Forest initially said it would follow the state mandate requiring masks inside the park. But if you could provide proof of vaccination, you could walk around mask-free. Yesterday morning, the ba they backtracked on their opening date, citing concerns about threats and comments. Park co-manager Susan Vaslev said, quote, We weighed it all out and decided that we cannot open safely. Until we reach the point where we all agree how this transition is going to take place between masks unmasked, vaccinated, unvaccinated, and everybody can be together safely and co-mingle. That has to happen before we can reopen. Like we said earlier, businesses are legally allowed to make proof of vaccination now a requirement to enter a premises. No word yet on how yesterday's mask announcement affects the park's plan to reopen moving forward. Oregon State Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum asked lawmakers to address past non-unanimous jury verdicts. This comes on the heels of Monday's Supreme Court ruling that it wouldn't overturn old non-unanimous jury verdicts in Oregon or Louisiana. SCOTUS ruled last year that such rulings are unconstitutional. Oregon and Louisiana were the only states that allowed them. In Monday's ruling, SCOTUS is leaving the decision to overturn old cases up to the state. About 300 people in the Oregon state prison system could be affected by the ruling, a large portion of them black or Hispanic. In her statement to lawmakers, Rosenblum said even though the process could take up to two years, quote, the issue of retroactivity is a matter of both policy and law and could and should be addressed much sooner and expeditiously. Portland Trailblazer star Carmelo Anthony will help sponsor a $10,000 scholarship for black students who want to study mental health. The social change fund United has partnered with Bold.org to award two black students who want to study mental health $5,000 scholarships each. Melo founded the social change fund with his good NBA friends Chris Paul and Dwayne Wade in 2020 to support critical issues impacting the Black community. The groups have made the announcement as part of Mental Health Awareness Month, which takes place in May. Only a third of Black Americans receive the mental health care they need, according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Part of this might be due to the underrepresentation of Black mental health professionals. According to a 2015 report from the American Psychology Association, 
86% of therapists in the U.S. were white, 5% Asian, 5% Hispanic, and only 4% were black. Mello has been with the Blazers since last season and recently moved into the top 10 on the NBA all-time scoring list. And the good news is today, Oregon will now recognize Indigenous Peoples Day instead of Columbus Day. After a new bill passed yesterday, Oregon will take the second Monday in October to acknowledge the idea that Columbus discovered America is inaccurate. In fact, Columbus's voyage began a slew of, quote, heinous crimes against humanity. Instead, beginning this October 12th, we will honor the civilizations that already lived here. House Bill 2526 was brought forth by the legislature's only indigenous lawmakers, Representative Tana Sanchez from Portland and Representative Teresa Alonso Leon from Woodburn. Woodburn. It passed by a 22-7 to 7 vote in the Oregon Senate yesterday after having passed 50-5 to 5 in the House last month. The bill now heads to Governor Kate Brown's desk for a signature. Oregon will be the 11th state in the nation to formally recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, Julia and Andy speak with Emily Green from Street Roots. The conversation flows from the movie Nomadland to the importance of the worldwide network of street newspapers. Joining us now is Emily Green, Managing Editor of Street Roots. We will talk about this edition's cover story and interview with Jessica Bruder, author of Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. The book was the inspiration for the movie Nomadland, which recently won six Oscars, including Best Picture. Emily, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. For our listeners who haven't read the book or seen the movie, can you tell us a little bit about Nomadland? Yeah, so Nomadland is a movie about an older woman named Fern. She's in her 60s. She's from a small town called Empire, Nevada. And her husband dies, and a gypsum plant where she works closes. So she ends up living in her van as she travels around the country, going from one seasonal job to another. Um, the book is uh, nonfiction, um, and this is what the movie is based on. It's about this whole culture of modern-day van and RV-dwelling nomads, um, many of whom are too old to land a good-paying job, but also too poor to retire or to afford rent anywhere. So they survive by traveling around um, from seasonal job to seasonal job, such as uh, working at an Amazon warehouse for the Christmas rush, than maybe campsites or roadside tourist attractions in the summer. And um, this week in Street Roots, we feature an interview with Jessica Bruder, who uh, wrote a book about this culture. And Fern in the movie is kind of a composite of different characters in the book. And as Jessica explains in the interview, um, she also draws a little bit from the actress who plays her, Frances McDormand's own um, aspirations to uh, become a van dweller herself when she reaches her mid-60s um, and just drive around the country and even changing her name to Fern, which was the name of the main character in the movie. So she got she had a little say in the in the amalgamation of characters there. What are some of the greater social issues at work here? Well, um, for one, I think that both 
um, Fern's character and some of the other characters in the movie represent an often overlooked segment of society, and that's uh, downwardly mobile older female Americans. Um, one in six older women living alone live in poverty. That's twice as many as men. Um, women receive, on average, $341 less per month in Social Security. Um, this is often because their contributions are less over a lifetime due to um, interruptions from parenting and caregiving. Um, but it also just represents um, so many uh, boomers who don't have retirement savings and are forced to continue working, often jobs that even younger people would find, you know, really difficult. Um, and, you know, Amazon gets a lot of flack in uh, the book and the movie and in general, I think, for, you know, exploiting people's need to work. But, you know, it's not unique to Amazon. And um, something that's kind of remind me, reminded me of was just in April, I'm sure you remember the mass shooting at the FedEx warehouse in Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. And something that struck me about some of the reports that came out of that was that the people working that graveyard shift and some of the people who were killed were in their 60s and 70s. And I'm just thinking, you know, here we have senior citizens um, working a graveyard shift, doing hard physical labor. Many of them, you know, couldn't tell their families that they were safe because they have to surrender their phone when they clock in. Mm. So they're essentially being treated like children. Um, you know, this is just something that's really pervasive in our society. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really um, important point to draw, I think, from this lifestyle. I know in the article, um, Jessica Bruder says that, you know, when she was younger, she always thought RVs were for retired people having a good time. And um, when she started to do her research and she kind of realized that, no, a lot of people are actually living out of that because that is their only, their, that is the easiest or the, the cheapest way for them to live and the only thing they can afford. Uh, the story of Nomadland is a story of people that have been left behind by society, but um, it's also a story of those people finding each other and taking care of each other. What are some of the unexpected joys and upsides of this type of life? Yeah, I mean, there really is a tight-knit uh, tight community. Um, folks that live this lifestyle really take care of each other. In the movie, um, it shows gatherings, yearly gatherings, where people come together. They often you know, know each other. And in the movie, Fern's character um, has run-ins time and again with another nomad named Linda May. And Linda May is actually a real nomad. Um, she is from the book, and Linda May herself played the character Linda May in the movie, which I oh, thought was cool. kind of interesting. Um, but they, her and Fern kind of have this friendship, even though they don't travel together. You know, they, they're, they're together in the struggle. That's pretty, that's pretty neat. Uh, so this article was originally published in the Big Issue Australia. Why, uh, what's the connection now to get it appearing in Street Roots? Yeah, so there are actually more than 100 street papers in 35 countries published in 25 different languages around the world. They are all members of the International Network of Street Papers, um, uh, each paper, like Street Roots, is its own independent nonprofit. We all operate a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Some, like The Big Issue, are a glossy print magazine that often features celebrity interviews. 
And then there's some papers like Street Roots and Real Change up in Seattle that are, um, you know, more hyper-local uh, weekly newspapers that, you know, serve a news function um, in their communities. But we rely on each other for content. We all share our content through the international network of street papers, um, which is great because some street papers have no newsroom at all. And some that do, like Street Roots, you know, we have a very small newsroom. So it's helpful to have um, stories from all corners of the earth translated from all sorts of different languages to share with our readers. You might have a small news force, but you guys are certainly a force in the in the Portland journalism Absolutely. scene. So thank you for that. This is Julia and Andy, and we are speaking with Emily Green, who is the managing editor of Street Roots. In, in your opinion, Emily, why do you think street papers are so important? Well, we all serve the same function. You know, we help people living in extreme poverty and homelessness earn an income with dignity. And that is an issue everywhere in the world. Um, but I think the one of the most important things that we do is we create a connection between people who are houseless and people who are housed. Um, we, we coexist in the same cities, mm-hmm. but there is often a lack of um, community between the two communities themselves. And just that simple act of having a neighborhood vendor, purchasing a newspaper from them, being able to talk to them about what's in the newspaper and how their day is going, um, really, you know, helps people understand the humanity um, that exists in all those tents that line our streets. I think that's really well said. I feel like I know my neighborhood street street roots vendor, you know, just, I don't know, I don't even know his name, but I talk to him all the time and just, you know, say hi and buy a paper mm-hmm. and see how he's doing and um you know he's a he's a person with dignity who's just not living in a house and i think that's really important and it's an important lesson for everybody to be a part of how can listeners uh support or get involved with the international network of street papers um they can learn more about the international network of street papers at insp.ngo um, we also, uh, just a little under two years ago, launched the INSP North America, uh, which is based right here in Portland and run by Street Roots former executive director Israel Bayer. And this um, bureau of INSP supports street papers in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. It helps start new street papers. So I encourage you to um, find them on Twitter, and you can also learn more about them at um, insp.ngo. Emily, thank you so much, as always, for the great work you do and for joining us this morning on X-Ray. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks to Emily for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And as always, thank you, democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.